We're going to be looking tonight in Joshua chapter 9. Joshua chapter 9, verse 27. And Joshua made them that day hewers of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord, even unto this day in the place which he should choose. God's grace and our mistakes. God had promised Israel a land. And we've seen that throughout our, our discussion of the book of Joshua on Sunday nights. He had promised to bless them and prosper them in that land. And uh, we're in that time where they are moving under the leadership of God and under the work of Joshua. And uh, they are moving into that land and they're having to deal then with all of the opposition. And tonight we're going to see a passage that reminds me of what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20 uh, when he said, Now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. I, I learned over the years, I'm not going to tell you how I learned that, that, uh, this principle, but I learned that a perfectly good Evinrude motor functioning, you know, lots of horsepower, push you across the lake really good. Uh, but if that little $1.99 shear pin is broken, uh, that motor is useless. does absolutely nothing. I learned you can have a, a fine, fine Chevrolet pickup. I don't know how many horsepower that 350cc uh, motor generates. It's quite a bit. Uh, motor, transmission, four-wheel drive, all that stuff. But if that $10 U-joint breaks, it won't get you home. Uh, you can have great electricity, all kinds of great electricity. But if lightning happens to hit the pole out there and trip that little breaker on the bottom of that unit, you know what? You're going to be out of lights for a while. I don't know how much those little breakers cost. I know that it takes the guys from the light company about five minutes to run that pole up there and flick it. And I know that you can be out of power for three weeks waiting on them guys to get there and do that. I'll tell you that story sometime. All of those things have the same thing really in common. It is an incredible power and ability that comes down to something that's really kind of weak, kind of inexpensive, easily broken, and all of that power has to channel through something small, something weak, inexpensive, not very valuable, inclined to break, maybe not work right. I think about that when I read Ephesians 3.20, when I think about the incredible omnipotence of God who has unbelievable, unimaginable, rather, power and ability, but yet He chooses to work through people like us. And He certainly knows that we are weak. He knows that we are inclined to break and give out. Uh, he knows that we're inclined just to up and quit for no discernible reason at the most inopportune times. He knows. Like he said to David one time, he said, David, I took you out of the sheep coat, the sheep pen, following your father's sheep when your own daddy wouldn't even call you to the lineup for king of Israel because your own dad didn't think you would ever be the one. I took you. 
God knows us. It's no wonder the psalmist said, Thou rememberest my frame, that I'm dust. God, you know me. You know what I am and who we are. God knows us. And yet he chooses to work through us. We all know tonight that God could do it without us. Amen? I mean, he could do fine. Maybe even do better. But he chooses to work through us, good or bad. That comes down to design. You see, God designed it so that his omnipotence would work through frail humanity, knowing then that by design it was going to require regular infusions of his grace to make this thing work. The story that's recorded for us in Joshua chapter 9 and chapter 10, and I won't be able to preach all of it tonight to just kind of get started on it really, uh, but it's a story that's fun to tell, and um, it, it begins with a time where the leaders of Israel made a mistake, another one. We remember this is coming rapidly on the heels of the big mistake they made at Ai, and, uh, and now here comes another one. But out of that mistake... God is going to work one of the greatest miracles that he ever did. And God is going to initiate a series of victories then for his people that are just amazing and incredible. It begins with the deception of the inhabitants of Gibeon. Gibeon was a strong, well-fortified Canaanite city. It was about seven miles uh, from the city of Ai, which was much smaller um, uh, far, far less significant a target militarily uh, than Gibeon was. Uh, the leaders of Gibeon had heard that Israel was uh, winning victories. They had heard that the God of Israel had given them the land of Canaan, in fact. We know that because that's their own testimony in the chapter. We heard about how that God had given you this land, and we had watched all these things begin to happen. And so they decided that they would create a subterfuge. Their goal was that they would work out the same kind of deal that Rahab worked out in Jericho. Because Rahab had pled for mercy and she got it for herself and her family. And so they decided that they were going to do the same kind of thing and try to work out the same kind of deal. But in order to get to that, they decided to be sneaky. When they came to Joshua, they began to talk to him about the victories that God had won all the way back when Moses was still alive. Uh, they wore old, wore-out clothes. They had wine that was in old bottles and old, sour wine. Bread that had grown crusty and moldy. Just to look at those folks, it looked like that they had been traveling for a long, long time. I love what happened when they asked them, now where are you guys from? And all they'd ever tell them is, we're from a long way away. Now that should have tipped them off. Joshua came back and said, now what country are you from? We're from a long, long way away. That's all they'd ever say. They said it twice in the passage. That might have given them a clue, but of course it didn't. So they took some of their victuals, again, that's, that's victuals, their supplies, the, the modern King James has it, and uh, their supplies, and that's rightly so, uh, not because they wanted to drink their old sour wine or eat their old moldy bread or wear their old clothes, though they were doing that uh, just to show everybody these folks are from a long, long way away. 
And this is the evidence. So they took their victuals, the Bible says. But verse 14, and they asked not counsel at the mouth of the Lord. Same mistake they'd made at Ai. Well, it wasn't long before the people found out. In fact, it took them about three days to discover that they'd been taken advantage of. And that they had, in fact, entered into an alliance with the inhabitants of Gibeon, which was their next target down the road, just seven miles away. And not only with them, but with three other cities, and now they were all in league with the children of Israel. Now, at that point, we might expect that Israel, once they found out that their whole promises to them had been based on bad information, we might say, well, you know, uh, we, we made a deal, but you lied to us. Uh, I mean, if you're a bank and you find out that somebody applied for a loan and they gave you false information and they got that loan then on the basis of that, we have a name for that. It is called fraud, and you can get in a lot of trouble for that. The IRS doesn't look real kindly on it. If they make a deal with you and then find out that you've lied to them, I mean, there's all kinds of legal provisions that are made for that. Legally, ethically, morally, if you make a deal with somebody on the basis of false information, you have every right to back out of the deal. Not the children of Israel. No, they said in verse 19, we have sworn unto them by the Lord God of Israel. Now, therefore, we may not touch them. But this we'll do to them. We'll even let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swore unto them. And the princes said unto them, Let them live, but let them be hewers of wood and drawers of water unto all the congregation as the princes had promised them. Unlike what happened at Ai with the children of Israel, there's no hint that God judged them. And that tells us right up front, there's a difference between what we would call an honest mistake and a deliberate sin. There was sin in the camp at Ai. Somebody had sinned against God, deliberately sinned. In this case, they did something wrong, but it's what we'd call an honest mistake. I know that kind of sounds like an oxymoron a little bit, honest mistake kind of like a white lie, but um, it, it, it's really, I think we understand the difference between a deliberate, bold-faced sin and somebody that just messed up. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 20, the Bible says this, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Aren't you glad that where sin reigns, or sin rules, grace overrules. Where sin reigns, grace then much more reigns. We don't presume on this as an excuse for sinning. Uh, the, Bible, the very next passage in Romans uh, calls on us to answer that question, shall we sin then so that grace may abound? God forbid, may it never be. But our text does show us some ways that God's grace operates through our mistakes. Uh, keep in mind now, an Evan Rude motor with a shear pin uh, electrical power with the 399 breaker. Uh, a truck with a, with a U-joint. 
I tried to think of some other things, maybe a singer sewing machine with a spool on it, a 99-cent spool. I, I, I tried. I know all of my examples were kind of mechanical in nature, but remember God by design, by design, chose to work His incredible power through mistake, failure-prone people, knowing, knowing that it was going to require regular infusions of His grace. So let's see how this plays out. Well, first of all, uh, God responds to the submission uh, of the Gideonites. Now, in Joshua chapter 9 and verse 2, talks about the kings. Uh, other kings in the land of Canaan had heard about the approach of the Israelites, and they gathered themselves together to fight with Joshua and with Israel with one accord. Many of these Canaanite kings were bitter enemies, one with another, but they've now uh, entered into an alliance together to fight against Joshua, to fight against Joshua's God, to fight against the God of Israel and the God of Israel's plans for them. And they were going to fight it to the death. And for the most part did. But then there was the Gibeonites. And they said, verse 24, Because it was certainly told thy servants how that the Lord thy God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore we were sore afraid of our lives because of you and have done this thing. And now behold, we are in thine hand as it seemeth good and right unto thee to do unto us. Do, that is, they threw themselves on the mercy of Joshua and of Joshua's God. Now, from the time that the children of Israel crossed the Jordan River, every time it seems like they're talking to the inhabitants of the land, the inhabitants are telling them, we're scared to death, we're terrified, and rightly so. They had heard about what God did to Egypt. Remember, Egypt was the superpower of their day. They had heard what God had did to the armies of Egypt. They had heard then how they crossed the Jordan River. Uh, and so they were terrified. They were terrified at the approach of the Israelites. Now hear this over and over again. Remember that the Israelites chose to listen to some of their numbers saying, man, there's giants in the land. Oh, man, we can't possibly overcome them. Meanwhile, all the people in the land were saying, what are we going to do? We'll never be able to beat the Israelites. There's a sermon in that all to itself. But I'll let you preach it to yourself. Have fun with it. I know you will. <clears throat> when they decided, though, to try to get through to this God, they chose a sneaky, crafty, cunning plan full of lies and deceit. Their fear of God was real and genuine. But their approach to God was, let's see if we can fool him. Let's see if we can fake him out and get an alliance from him that somehow God will let us be alive. 
Now, I remember when Paul the Apostle went to Athens and, and preached there. He hadn't planned to preach in Athens. He just kind of ended up there. And he ends up on Mars Hill, and he found that altar to the unknown God. And remember uh, that he began to preach to them this God that you ignorantly worship. You don't know God. You don't know how to worship Him. You've built an image to Him. God doesn't want you to do that. They had built an altar to Him. God had never told them to do that. Their worship of God was all wrong. Their approach to God was all wrong. Of course it was. They didn't know Him. And so Paul said in Acts chapter 17, the times of this ignorance God winked at. Now that means God overlooked it. Now that doesn't mean the Athenian people were saved, not at all. It meant that God did not judge them because of their ignorant worship of Him. They were ignorant, they did what they did, they didn't know how to worship God, and so God did not hold them accountable for their ignorant worship of Him. And I think of that in reference to the Gibeonites. They had heard of God. They genuinely feared God. They were trying to get to God. Their approach was completely and totally wrong because they tried to deceive His followers and lied to them. And that approach was completely wrong. But somehow, somehow, they ended up being kept alive anyway. What I want to know is what would have happened had they just approached Joshua saying, look, we're from Gibeah, we're your next target. We've heard of the God of Israel, we don't want to die. We've here, we're here to plead for mercy. Just keep us alive. That's where they ended up anyway. That's how the story ended up. They ended up doing exactly that, just fessing up. We heard about God. We heard about how great God is. And, and just do with us what you will. We're here in mercy just to plead for mercy. You and I know how God responds to people who do that, don't we? But they didn't know that. They didn't know that. Their fear was genuine. They were trying to save their lives. That was real. Their approach was completely flawed. You know, Simon Peter told us, uh, said some great things in Acts chapter 10 when he said, Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but every nation. He that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted of him. There's no respect of persons with God. And so God then respected the decision of his people. And that's what it came down to. All the princes said unto the congregation, verse 19, We have sworn unto them by the Lord God of Israel. Now therefore we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We will even let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swear unto them. How many of you have ever heard the expression, Two wrongs don't make a right? Anybody nod your head like this? You heard that? Most everybody's heard that. Mostly you've heard it from me. I say it. Two wrongs don't make a right. Yeah, the, the people of Gibeon had come and lied to them, but... And, it, had they just gone back on their word, they understood that would have been just adding another wrong to what was already wrong. Yes, in their foolish sin, darkened ignorance and wickedness, the Gibeonites made a foolish decision in their response to the fear of God. But to their credit, the leaders of Israel understood that they had given their word, they had sworn in the name of God, and they could not go back on it. It was hard on them to honor their promise. That's why they were murmuring against the princes. 
But remember Ecclesiastes in 5, 4, and says, When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. They had made a promise in the name of their God, and they were determined to keep it. And they weren't judged for that. God respected that. How do we know that? Because he rewarded the Gibeonites. Look in verse 27. And Joshua made them that day hewers of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord, even unto this day in the place which he should choose. That is, that God should choose. Add in then verse 22 and 23. And Joshua called for them, and he spake unto them, saying, Wherefore have you beguiled us, saying, We are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, and there shall none of you be freed from being bondmen and hewers of wood and drawers of water for the house of my God. And so God saved them alive. But they were also cursed because they were going to be hewers of wood and bearers of water for the house of God, and that was the temple. And remember, they didn't know where it was going to wind up. We know that was going to be the temple mount in Jerusalem. It's hard for us to notice just how high that mountain is unless you've been there and how far down it is down in the Kidron Valley and how far it is up that temple and then all the way into Jerusalem, all the way up on the Temple Mount. They didn't have plumbing back then. No, no water pumped up there. Think with me for a moment about all of those sacrifices that went up on that mountain every day. Have you ever burned an animal, like a cow or horse, or been around maybe where it was done? Just try to imagine with me how much of a pile of wood it would take to reduce a full-grown cow to ashes. And they did that pretty regular. I, I still don't know. I don't have an answer for the question. I don't have a clue where they got all the wood. Because I've been to the land of Israel. It's pretty barren. Maybe it's barren because they stripped all the trees all those years. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where they got it. But it wasn't just laying around in great abundance. What I'm trying to tell you is, is that the guys who had to carry the wood and supply the wood for the altars and the sacrifices and the ritual washings that went on up there on that temple mount day after day after day, this was a huge, huge job. And it was going to be a sign to the Gibeonites for all their generations. That was their curse. But I want you to know tonight that God also blessed those people because Israel kept their word to them. He blessed them. What was their blessing? What was their reward? They got to be hewers of wood and drawers of water for the house of God. And that's a big job, and it's a lot of work. It's a menial task that not a lot of people would like. But it was for God. It's in the house of God. And it was their curse, yeah. <laughs> but it was also their blessing, folk. Uh, there's a lot of tasks around a church like Faith Baptist or any church that uh, not a lot of people want. 
but let me tell you something. There are no insignificant tasks in the service of God. When we do it for God, it's a great work, and it's a great blessing. And the children of Gideon, yes, they were cursed. They were cursed to be servants. <laughs> but they were blessed because they were servants of the Most High God. Remember what the psalmist David said in a passage I love to quote, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tabernacles of wickedness. It is no small privilege to be a doorkeeper in the house of God. What a privilege it was. And they got to be hewers of wood. Psalm 84 and 10, the psalmist says, For a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I've already quoted that. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. I guess the guy's probably already headed up there. But I missed the first part. One day is better than a thousand. Better is one day. Remember that song? When the Gibeonites were doing those jobs, that meant that some of the Levites were freed up to do other things. And that was a good thing as well. But it also made an incredible difference in their lives because generations would pass. Those people that had lied to Joshua, they would die and their children would take their place and their children would take their place and their children and their children and their children and their children and their children. And you get the point, their children. And Along the way, those people got a name. We don't know where or when or why, but they got a name. Their name was the Nethanim. The Nethanim. Nethanim. They're recorded for us in Nehemiah chapter 10 and verse 28. You remember Nehemiah. That is generations and generations down the road. And now those descendants of, Gibeon, of the Gibeonites are now called the Nethanim. And guess what? When they numbered the children of Israel in the book of Nehemiah, the Gibeonites were included in that number, the Nethanim. Now they're part of the congregation of Israel. Now they're still hewers of wood and bearers of water. They're still servants of the Most High God. But now they're numbered among the children of Israel. And verse 29 says, They clave unto their brethren. And they entered then into this pledge to walk in accordance with the law of God. Somewhere you see those people who were cursed not only were considered servants of God, but they become part of God's people, Israel. This gives to us in tonight a remarkable demonstration in Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 11 where the Bible says, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. And though the Gibeonites started out doing everything wrong, in the end they did what was right. They fell before God and they called out to him for mercy. They said, We're in your hands. Do with us what seemeth right unto thee to do. Here we are. They surrendered. They did that out of fear 
the God of Israel. They knew him as much as they knew of him. They knew that he was an incredible God, and they fell before him. They turned from their way, and they lived. As servants, yes, but they lived. This also gives to us a great lesson in the difference between what it means to come to God just like we are in repentance and call on Him for mercy like Rahab did, as opposed to the Gibeonites who tried to sneak and connive their way around and and get around and kind of come around this way and that way and then ultimately ended up coming to God the way they were supposed to anyway, just falling down before Him in mercy and say, God, here we are. It's all we are. They ended up being servants for all their generations. Now, that was both their curse and their blessing. We're servants. Let's think for a minute about what happened to that woman of rather dubious reputation from Jericho by the name of Rahab who just came to God just like she was. She, she never made any bones about it. She came in repentance just as she was and called on them for mercy. What happened to her? Well, you know, we know what kind of woman she was, what kind of life she had lived. Surely she probably ended up just in some back corner or something somewhere. Isn't that how things went with Rahab? Mm, not exactly. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 5 tells us this, that Salmon begat Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz begat Obed by Ruth. Obed begat Jesse. Jesse had a whole bunch of boys, the last one of which was David. So let's look at this lineage here. There's Boaz. We remember him. Salmon begat Boaz. Boaz's mama was Rahab. That means that Rahab ended up as royalty in the house of Israel. That's the difference between coming to God just as we are and falling on Him, asking Him for mercy. And God gives mercy in abundance. As opposed to trying to sneak and connive our way in and find a loophole. <laughs> and then ended up falling on our knees anyway. What a difference God put on display. What a premium then the Bible puts on people who just come to God with honesty. God, I've messed up. And I need your mercy. Sometimes we too will make mistakes. Maybe we enter into an alliance with somebody. We begin to work with somebody. We choose somebody and they turn out not to be what we expected them to be or not to do what we expected them to do. We make them promises or assurances. And sometimes it's hard for us to, to see all of that. Sometimes it's hard for us to watch God be merciful to people who have done us wrong. Can anybody in this building say amen to that? 
it's hard on us sometimes when we see God be merciful to people who have done us wrong. But let's remember this story tonight. Remember that lady named Rahab. Remember about Ruth and her story. Remember that, that we tend to play out things in days and months and weeks and years. And God looks down to children's, 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 children. To see how that this decision can play out in the lives of people. And what a difference it can make sometimes in a whole nation. I always loved what God said about Nineveh. Cannot I have mercy on the city of Nineveh? Then knowing that there's people, all these many people in that city that can't tell their left and their right, their children. I could wipe that city out, sure I could. But think about the mercy that he can show. You see, God sees children's 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 children. And he knows. He knows what that decision is going to do in the lives of people. So tonight, we see God's grace operating, yes, even in our mistakes. And, and that's a good thing for us to think about from time to time because we all make mistakes. Not talking about using that tonight as an uh, excuse for being sinful. Remember, there's a difference between an honest mistake and a deliberate sin of rebellion, like we saw in the case of Achan and the people of Ai. There's a difference. But tonight we see God's grace on display. If nothing else tonight, we can carry away from this that God's grace is bigger than our mistakes. That God's grace is bigger than our mess-ups. And there's something about that heart, if there first be a willing heart, that God accepts. God knows when our heart is right with Him and we're seeking Him. And He has a way of working to bring us to where we need to be, on our knees before Him, seeking mercy, grace, and restoration. Is that the decision you need to make tonight? Let's stand together, please.